Good morning so far, isn't it? Good morning of celebration. And uh, if you're a guest this morning, we are, we are glad that you're here. Um, I know many of you are here to celebrate um, the baptisms this morning and celebrate the professions of Christ made by um, those baptized this morning. So we, we do welcome you to Community Bible Church. If you have your Bibles, please turn to the book of Luke. We are uh, continuing our journey through Luke. We will be in chapter 22 today in verses 14 through 23. And uh, while you're turning there, I'm reminded uh, this morning of, a, of an event that happened a few weeks ago. Um, you, you may have noticed because our, you know, our family takes up a, a fairly sizable chunk of the worship center here. And, um, and you may have noticed a few weeks ago that we were gone. We were on a vacation to Disney World. And so it was a good trip. We had a good time. And one of the moments uh, when we were at Disney World, maybe it wasn't the, the brightest moment of our trip, was, it was an evening where, where some of the younger kids weren't feeling well. And so uh, we kind of divided and conquered. Uh, Kaylee took the younger kids back to the hotel, and I stayed with the older kids at, at Disney Springs. It's this little shopping entertainment sort of district. And, and there was this, there's this cookie shop there. Okay, it's a, it's a cookie shop. And, and it always has a, a line that, that is fairly sizable stretching outside, and there's a wait list to get in. And, uh, and it's been there for years. It's called Gideon's Bake Shop. And uh, I had always wanted to go there. It's like, it's, I just wanted to see, like, there's no windows. Like, it's, it's like kind of blacked out. So you can't see inside. The, I don't, didn't know what it looked like, even. So I was very intrigued to, to go in, in, into the shop. Well, you know, normally when you've got eight kids, you're not going to wait in this long line to get into this cookie shop. It just, you're not going to do it. But I thought, this was my chance. This is my chance. You know, half the kids are gone. I've got my older kids. This is the moment. So we proceed to the back of the line. But even at that moment, it was, it was kind of rainy. The weather wasn't the best. And, and so I, 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 there's this employee at the very back of the line. And, and he had an umbrella. And, and I, must, I must say, just from the outset, from the aesthetic, he looked, he looked fairly pretentious. He looked, a little, he looked a little snooty, and it takes one to know one, I know. But like, you know, we're, we're, we're at the back of the line, and, and I just, I said, sir, you know, I'm gonna, I've got these kids here. You know, I've still got half of my kids, which is still a fairly large group. And I said, sir, what's the wait time? He says, it's about 30 minutes. I said, oh, 30 minutes. I said, okay, well, I've got these kids here. Um, is, is like standing in line going to be, is, are the cookies that good? That I'm just, I just really want you to be honest with me. Are the cookies worth the wait? And in that moment, he, again, in a very pretentious manner, he's, he, no joking, completely serious, he said, sir, we are the best bakery in the entire world. So the best bakery. At that point, I was, I was kind of done. I was like, this is ridiculous. Because I'll tell you, there's, there's, there's two things I know a little bit about in life. I know, I know a little bit about God's word, and I know a lot about food. And if you know me, you know that I love a good meal. And I'm telling you this, if, I, I know a good bakery. And so at this point, I'm like, there's no way that the best bakery in the entire world is in a theme park resort. No chance. No chance. But he believed it. I don't know about you, what you would consider 
the best meal in the entire world is. I'm sure if we, if we were to, to take survey of this, of this room this morning, you know, there, there would be a wide variety of, of, of opinions to what the best meal you've ever had is. Some of you would like the hole-in-the-wall spot, the place that no one's ever heard of, where they know your name. It's a small county. It just, it's just unique. Some of you would like a fine dining experience with, with a giant spread of silverware and plates and courses and things of that nature. Some of you would just like, you know, some place that's cheap and expensive. Some of you would like maybe an experience. Like, you know, you, you want to go to a dinner theater. And the food may not be great, but it's a cool experience. Whatever it is, it's your definition of the greatest meal in the entire world. But I want to tell you about a meal this morning that truly is the greatest meal in the entire world. And it's a meal that costs you nothing. And it's a meal that costs Christ everything. And it's a meal that, that isn't the greatest tasting meal in the world. It isn't, it isn't physically the most fulfilling meal in the world. But the worth of this meal, what this meal represents, makes it the greatest meal in the entire world. And that is what we'll talk about this morning. It is the meal. It is the Lord's Supper. It is the Lord's Supper. And I know this morning we're getting here started at 1120. You're like, oh man, you know, I'm, we better be done by 12 because I'm going to be starving. Well, I'll tell you, my goal for you this morning, church, is that you would be starving. That you would be starving to partake of these elements this morning. That you would partake of these elements with great excitement and great joy as we meditate on what these elements represent this morning. So hopefully you have your Bibles and you've turned to Luke chapter 22 as I follow along as I read starting in, in verse 14. And when the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled on the kingdom of God. And he took a cup. And, we, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took the bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup, after they had eaten it, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined. But woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to question one another, which of them it could be, who was going to do this. May God bless the reading of his, of his word this morning. My main point is this. The Lord's Supper should remind us of the hope we have in Christ as it points us to the work of Christ on our behalf. The Lord's Supper should remind us of the hope we have in Christ 
as it points us to the work of Christ on our behalf. Friends, as we approach this text this morning, I believe that it is appropriate to spend some time considering the humanity of Jesus Christ at this point in his ministry, his humanity. Now, of course, as as Bible-believing evangelical Christians that we are, we believe and confess that Jesus was fully God and fully man, meaning he possessed all of the attributes of God and all of the attributes of man. Jesus was not some weird hybrid. He was not half God and half man. Jesus was completely God and completely man. And as we consider our, our time here in Luke chapter 22 this morning, we know that Jesus, being God, knew what awaited him the next day. He was mere hours away from his crucifixion. Now later on in in Luke 22, we know that the thought of his impending crucifixion brought agony to Jesus. So much that as he prayed, his sweat dropped to the ground as if it was like drops of blood. However, before we encounter Jesus' suffering in the Gospel of Luke today, we see a moment that Jesus eagerly looked forward to. Dr. Luke describes uh, this moment where Jesus reclines at the table with his 12 closest friends. Now, we might, we might recall from last week when, when Dave preached that this wasn't just any meal that Jesus and the apostles were taking part of. No, Jesus and his disciples, like most of the other Israelites, had come to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. Jesus had given Peter and John instructions and had commissioned them to set up the Passover meal for Jesus and the rest of the disciples to enjoy together. So Peter and John uh, set everything up according to Jesus' instructions, including the location of the meal being in a large upper room in Jerusalem. Then, verse 14 tells us that the hour had come, and it was time for the 13 of them to partake of the Passover meal together. However, what, what strikes me is, is, is so astonishing here is Jesus' comments in verse 15. Consider with us, again, with the humanity of Christ, consider all that was on Jesus' mind for a moment. As the day of his suffering and his death, it, it, it drew near. Consider the humanity of Christ as his body likely responded to his impending crucifixion the same way that our bodies would respond to the news. How could, how could Jesus concentrate at all? Did he have shortness of breath? Was his heart about to beat out of his chest? Were his, were his eyes, were they, were they weepy? We, we don't know. But we know that because Jesus was human, his response had to be a human response. Yet, in the midst of the turmoil going on inside of him, Jesus says this. He says, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Now, now, these are easy words to pass over, no pun intended, in the text. But, but I think that they're of monumental importance here. I don't think the English translation quite portrays how great of a desire that the Greek text emphasizes here. Earnestly desired is, a, is, is indeed a, a faithful word-for-word translation, but it doesn't emphasize the intensity that the Greek does. 
Jesus wasn't just looking forward to, to spending time with his friends here. Jesus, he craved the moment. He didn't just desire it. He intensely desired it. He craved it. Everything within him desired to eat this particular Passover meal with his closest disciples. And as I've studied this text, I've, I've, I've had to ask the question, why does Jesus want to eat this Passover meal with his disciples so bad before he suffers? Was it the simple fact that he was spending time with the people that he loved before he died? Was it because of his great love for the Passover celebration? Was it the quality of the meal prepared before him? Well, as Dave mentioned last week, we know that the Passover meal was the largest celebration of the year for the Jewish people. The Passover celebrated arguably the biggest event in Israel's history to that point when the Lord finally delivered the Israelites from slavery at the hands of Pharaoh and the Egyptians. Now, if you read the Old Testament, you'll find that the Lord God delivered Israel from the hands of its enemies many times. What is particularly interesting about the Passover is what it represented and how the Lord redeemed his chosen people. Friends, in Exodus 11, we find the prophet Moses approaching Pharaoh with one last plague that the Lord had revealed to him that he would use to judge the Egyptians. In this final plague, the Lord God promised to kill all the firstborn children in Egypt if Pharaoh did not release the Israelites from slavery. The Lord would commit such an act of judgment to highlight his holiness and his love for his people. He would do this, listen, primarily by creating a distinction between God's chosen people and the Egyptians. In fact, in, in Exodus eleven seven, 7, the Lord specifically says he would bring about this plague so that you may know that the Lord does make a difference between the Egyptians and Israel. At the very heart of the Passover is the matter of distinction. Those who were God's chosen people would be characterized by blessing in life. Those who rejected Yahweh would be characterized by curses and death. Another vital part of the Passover was the ceremonial meal that the Lord God called the Israelites to take part in. In Exodus 12, Yahweh called each Jewish household to take a lamb without blemish and to, and to kill it at twilight. Upon killing the lamb, they would take some of the blood of the lamb and put it on the doorpost and the lintel of their homes. Then they would roast the lamb and eat it along with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. Then in Exodus 12, 12 through 13, God told his people, For I will pass through the land of Egypt on that night and will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and against all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. Now the blood shall be a sign for, for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And the plague shall not be on you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. You see, friends, not one, not one of the Israelites could be saved without blood being spilled and applied to their household. Everyone who trusted the Lord and by faith applied the blood to the doorpost would live. 
Simultaneously, the Egyptians who rejected the Lord would watch as the Lord took the lives of their firstborn. In fact, Exodus 12 tells us this, that every single household in Egypt experienced death that night. Everyone. It was this act that the Lord would use to deliver the Israelites from the hand of the Egyptians once and for all. It was this act and this feast that God would call his people to remember and celebrate in Deuteronomy chapter 16. They would forever celebrate their departure from slavery to freedom, from death to life. And in our scene in in Luke 22, this is exactly what the Israelites during the time of Jesus would have celebrated. This is what Jesus and his disciples would have celebrated as they sat down to partake of the Passover meal. However, again... Why was Jesus so passionate in his desire to eat this Passover meal with them before he suffered? Why? In their several years of ministering alongside Jesus and being discipled by Jesus, I can't imagine that this was the first Passover meal they celebrated together. In fact, the law required the Israelites to celebrate the Passover feast, so we know that Jesus celebrated the Passover meal every year of his life. What was so significant about this one? Friends, this Passover meal was so important because it was at this Passover meal that Jesus would clearly reveal what the Passover meal pointed to all along. It was at this Passover meal where Jesus would do away with the old covenant and bring about the new covenant. It was at this Passover meal that Jesus would establish what we call communion or the Lord's Supper. Friends, we must recognize that even in the midst of of his impending death, Jesus was excited about the Supper. He was excited. Jesus was excited about establishing this new covenant ordinance. Here's a question for us to consider this morning, church. Do we find any joy in partaking of the Lord's Supper? It's a simple question. Do we actually find joy as we take this each week? In a church like ours, I I know that it can be easy for the Lord's Supper to become routine or just another religious activity that we embark on because we take the the Lord's Supper so, so frequently. We might blame our lack of joy and affection in celebrating the Lord's Supper on familiarity. In other words, we partake of the Lord's Supper each week, therefore it has become mundane. It has become boring and lacks a certain level of gravity in our lives. Friends, I've been a part of several different churches in my life. Some partake of communion monthly, others quarterly, and and others twice a year. No matter how many times the church observes communion each year, it is often met with the same response among the congregation. Our problem isn't that we are too familiar with the Lord's Supper to truly enjoy it. Our problem is that we are too unfamiliar with it. We approach the table with disengaged hearts and disengaged minds. As we come and and we grab these elements each week, we turn off our brains and we turn off our hearts and, and we go into autopilot. We take the elements, we sit down, we eat, we move on with our day. That's it. 
This morning, friends, I want to spend the rest of our time in an effort to understand the importance of this meal. As we do, I pray that our hearts would align with Jesus's as to the great importance of the Lord's Supper. So, why should we find great delight? Why should we find great delight and great joy as we partake of the Lord's Supper? We've got four points, four reasons. Four reasons why we should take great delight and great joy. If you have your notes, they're right there. Point one, the Lord's Supper reminds us to look to the future. The Lord's Supper reminds us to look to the future. In verses 16 and 18, Jesus tells his disciples that he will not eat the bread or drink of the cup again until Jesus brings the kingdom of God. In fact, Jesus says that the ultimate Passover fulfillment happens not when we're taken out of earthly slavery and into earthly freedom, such as what happened with Israel. The ultimate Passover happens when we go from this life to true life in eternity future. Here, Jesus is pointing to a time in the future when Jesus establishes his kingdom in its fullness. His kingdom, it will be physical and it will be tangible. He will reign on earth and God's people will reign with him. There will be no sin, no sorrow, no sickness, no death. There will be no division or any opposition to Christ. We will see Christ in his glory reigning in victory. Friends, if you are in Christ, this is the penultimate moment that we look forward to more than anything. We long, we long for the day where our faith becomes sight. Just as the original Passover meal celebrated God taking his people Israel out of slavery and into freedom, the Lord's Supper points to the day where our salvation, our salvation is ultimately realized. The day where all of Christ's people are together with him and he is on the throne. We must understand this, church. That the Lord's Supper is deeply eschatological. Unfortunately, many people don't think of it this way. This is in part because most Christians have a weak eschatology. Their eschatology is narrowed down, this broad topic of eschatology, it's narrowed down simply to a view of the rapture and a view of the millennium, and that's it. That's it. If that is the totality of your doctrine of the end times, if that's all it is, I want to encourage you, Christian, to please read your Bible and put more meat on the bone. There is far more the Bible has to say about eschatology than just two topics of the rapture and the millennium. God gives us eschatology in the Bible to give us hope. He gives us the Lord's Supper to give us eschatological hope. I can tell you that Jesus wanted us to think about it this way. He did. This is evident because the Apostle Paul thought about it this way. When he comments on the Lord's Supper in 1 Corinthians 11, he tells the church at Corinth, For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Paul could have said, For as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death. That is how most people view the Lord's Supper. However, it is an incomplete view. It is inadequate. 
We proclaim Christ's death knowing that he is risen and he will come again to rule and to reign. Now, part of the reason we approach the table with such apathy is because our hearts are so fixated on the things of this world. We seek to have our deepest affections fulfilled in this life with money or sex or leisure or fame or relationships or family or kids or traveling or status or whatever. And we must understand that nothing, nothing, nothing in this world will ever truly satisfy us. Nothing. In fact, nothing in this life will ever satisfy us. Understand that. We must be careful that we do not have an over-realized eschatology. Even for Christians, this life is not as good as it gets. Amen. We are saved, and nothing can snatch us from Jesus' hand. You see, the Holy Spirit lives within us and, and sanctifies us. In this life, Christ does give us peace and joy and happiness. Yet, even the peace and joy and happiness that we have in this life pales in comparison to what awaits us. We need something to remind us of the hope that awaits us. This is what the table does. The Lord's Supper should cause us to take our eyes off the things of this world and to look forward to eternity future with great anticipation to when the kingdom of God comes in its fullness. Point two, the Lord's Supper reminds us of our unity in Christ. The Lord's Supper reminds us of our unity in Christ. We see this in verse 17 where Luke writes, After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among you. For I I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took the bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to them, saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Here, Jesus took a single cup of wine, And he blessed it and divided that single cup of wine among the disciples. He also took a a single loaf of bread and he broke it and dispersed it out to the disciples. Both of these examples point to our singular source of blessing as a result of being in Christ Jesus. We don't find eternal life through anything other than Jesus Christ. Nothing. Allah won't get you there. Mormonism won't get you there. Moralism and good works won't get you there. Voting a certain way won't get you there. Church attendance or giving money to the church won't get you there. There is only one entrance into God's kingdom, and that is through His Son, Jesus Christ. The Lord's Supper, it reminds us of that. It reminds us that the Lord Jesus Christ's body was broken for us. You just meditate on that for a moment. Isn't that amazing? The second person of the Trinity, his body that he put on, broken for us. If you are in Christ Jesus, Christ offered himself for you. For you. There was no greater gift or fact or reality in all of the world. This truth should truly ignite our hearts no matter what season we are in or our current station in life. When we as a church partake of the Lord's Supper together, friends, this is what we are celebrating. We are acknowledging, confessing, and remembering that Christ gave himself for us. Us. 
plural. He left the throne of heaven and put on flesh for the singular purpose of giving that flesh for us. Friends, our greatest unity in this church isn't because we all look the same way. It isn't. It doesn't exist because we vote the same way. We aren't unified because we all choose to homeschool. We aren't unified because our wives work in the home or outside the home. We aren't unified because of our personalities. We aren't unified because of our socioeconomic status. Friends, we aren't even primarily unified because of theological unanimity. No, friends. There are are some people in this church that I constantly struggle to understand and even agree with. There are times where personalities clash in our church. Yet, these very same people are some of the people that I am the most unified with in the entire world. Why? Why? Because we are unified in one single crucial, significant, weighty, life-changing, eternity-altering, God-exalting way, and that is the fact that we are in Christ. This is exactly what Jesus wants us to remember when we partake of the Lord's Supper. This is exactly what Paul thought about when he took the Lord's Supper. We might recall this when he rebuked the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians 10 and 11. Paul told the Corinthian church, the bread that we break, is it not participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. In fact, Paul goes on to scold the church at Corinth because of the way that they partook of the Lord's Supper. Essentially, they were bastardizing the Lord's Supper. They were partaking of the meal in a way that did not demonstrate the unity that is to be found in the body of Christ. They partook in a way that showed partiality, gluttony, factions, among other things. Paul takes such issue with their divisive and sinful practicing of the Lord's Supper that he tells them it is the reason many of you are weak and ill and some have died. Community Bible Church, do we understand how important it is to see the unity highlighted in the Lord's Supper? Do we see it? Is this something that we strive for? Is this something you strive for? Yes, we have positional unity in Christ. We even have actual unity in Christ. We will spend all of eternity together. We have the Holy Spirit living within us. We are truly unified. Yet, the way we treat one another at times is anything but an expression of unity. It is amazing how quick we can be to hold a grudge or not forgive someone, even in the church. Whether it is is within a family, a marriage, or a group of friends within this room, we can often be a group of people who are comfortable with division and unforgiveness. We can be a people that far prefer to simply be around people that look, act, and speak like us. We love friends that share our same budget. We love friends that share our same way of life. We only enjoy people who share our same intellect. At times, church, we are guilty of the sin of partiality. And friends, there is no room for such haughty sin in the body of Christ. There's no room. 
The Lord's Supper should remind us each week of the unity we have as Christians who are found in Christ alone. We should strive to fight for that unity and give our lives to maintaining that unity to the glory of God. If there is any division among people in this church, may it be settled as we partake of the table each week. Point three. The Lord's Supper reminds us of Christ's atoning sacrifice. The Lord's Supper reminds us of Christ's atoning sacrifice. According to the law in the Old Covenant, for over 1,500 years, the Israelites celebrated the Passover by sacrificing a lamb. As they partook of the feast, they would recall that it was the blood of the lamb on their doorpost that kept them from the judgment of God and instead redeemed them. We know that faithful Israelites knew that the blood of bulls and lambs could never actually pay the penalty of their sin. Their sin still had to be dealt with. Their hope was in the promised one to come who would fulfill the promise found in Genesis 3.15. Until then, their lives were marked by the necessity of making continual sacrifices by faith for their ongoing sin. Yes, friends, the Israelites, they were, they were used to the realities of, of blood and atonement and sacrifices. They were used to the burden of the law. They were aware of their guilt before God, and they understood the weight of the old covenant. They were also aware of a new covenant. They were aware of a new covenant that God had promised in Jeremiah 31 and Ezekiel 36. Everyone in this covenant would know the Lord. Everyone in this covenant would have the law of God written on their heart. The Lord God would remove their heart of stone. And he, he would give them a, a heart of flesh. They would each receive the Holy Spirit inside of them. And most important, Jeremiah 31 and Ezekiel 36 highlight that their sin, it would be dealt with. This is because God promised to deliver them from their uncleanliness. Their sin would be forgiven and remembered no more. However, God would not just forget their sin and he would not just sweep it under the rug. That would be a, a violation of God's holiness and a, and a violation of God's justice. Instead, their sin would be paid for once and for all. This is where we pick up back in Luke twenty-two twenty, 20, where we read in the same way after the supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. Friends, the significance of, of this moment cannot be overstated. It was at this point where Jesus revealed to the disciples once and for all what the Passover meal and the whole Old Testament pointed to most clearly. No longer was there a need for bulls, goats, and lambs, for the one true and final Passover lamb was in their midst. A few hours after this supper, Jesus would offer himself to make final atonement for our sins. His body would be broken and his blood would be spilled to pay the penalty of our sin before a holy God. Jesus didn't do this begrudgingly. Jesus wasn't guilted into this, but he willingly offered himself for the joy set before him. Friends, if you are in Christ, Jesus did this for you. His blood was spilled for you. And like the lamb at the Passover had to be spotless in order to meet God's righteous requirements, our representative Jesus had to be spotless as well. 
The reason Jesus could represent us before God was because he was a sinless man. Jesus met all of the righteous requirements of the law that we could never meet. Never once did Jesus utter a sinful word or have a sinful desire. While we could never ever obey God's law, Christ obeyed it perfectly. He did. Because of his righteousness in fulfilling the law, Jesus was clearly establishing the new covenant in his blood. Once Jesus made atonement on the cross, the sacrificial system was over. The law was fulfilled. The true intent of the Passover meal would be complete. The sacrificial lamb would be slain and then cry out, It is finished. Christ would take our sin and we would receive his righteousness. Because of this, we could stand forgiven and redeemed and blameless before a holy God. Friends, as we partake of communion each week, we take the bread and the cup knowing that our sin is paid in full. We remember what Christ did for us in offering himself on the cross. The Lord's Supper should be a moment of radical self-denial. We don't partake of this meal in order to make God happy with us. It's not what we do. We partake of this meal because the Father is happy with Christ's work attributed to us. Because of this, we should partake of the elements with the utmost humility and utmost joy. Finally, the Lord's Supper also distinguishes who will receive judgment. The Lord's Supper also distinguishes who will receive judgment. Remember that the original Passover was meant to make a distinction between those who were children of the promise and those who were children of wrath. That was one of God's primary purposes in bringing about the Passover. Similarly, as we've considered this morning, the Lord's Supper is meant to be celebrated by those who are in Christ. This meal right here, that we will partake of in just a few minutes, it is for Christians. If baptism is the initial confession that you are a follower of Christ, participation in the Lord's Supper is the ongoing confession that you are a part of the body of Christ. That's what it represents. As you partake of the meal, you are proclaiming the Lord's death for our sins until he returns. Naturally, if this is for Christians, this creates a distinction. It creates a distinction. This highlights those also who are not in Christ. See, being baptized doesn't save you. We've made that clear this morning. It's also make it clear that partaking of the Lord's Supper doesn't save you. However, baptism and the Lord's Supper are for Christians. They're not for non-Christians. Today, if you stand here not partaking of the Lord's Supper because of your lack of faith in Christ, friends, know this, that the Bible describes you as ready to receive the wrath of God. One could say that those who are not partaking of the Lord's Supper are distinct for their lack of trusting in Christ. However, it is possible, hear me, it is possible to falsely take the Lord's Supper without truly trusting in Christ and worshiping his, Him as Lord. We get a picture of this in the last few verses of this passage as we read in, in verse 21. But the hand of Him who is going to betray me is with mine 
on the table. The Son of Man will go as it has been decreed, but woe to that man who betrays him. They began to question among themselves which of them it might be who would do this. I find it very interesting that in the context of this meal, Jesus highlights that one of these men would betray him. But he did. Now, Jesus, Jesus didn't have to do this. He didn't have to say that. It, it really, truly made no difference to the rest of the disciples. Jesus could have understood that Judas was going to betray him and never said a word to anybody. Now we know that Judas' betrayal fulfilled prophecy. We understand that. And it could have been revealed after the fact, but Jesus did not have to say it. It would not have changed anything about his arrest or his atoning sacrifice. We know that Judas was the one who would betray Jesus. Jesus did it as a warning to Judas and everyone like him. You see, Judas partook of the ministry of Christ. Judas called himself a disciple. He performed miracles and preached the kingdom. He even participated in the Lord's Supper here. Yet, as Scripture will show us, he never truly trusted in Christ. He betrayed Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. Because of his lack of faith in Christ, Jesus pronounces woes on him. Unless he repented and trusted in Christ, he would receive the wrath of God. Friend, if you are in outright open rebellion towards God, or in a secret rebellion towards God like Judas, know this, that it makes no difference to God. Rebellion is rebellion. There are two groups of people in this world, those who trust in Christ and those who don't. There is no middle ground. However, know that God stands ready to offer you forgiveness and grace because of what Christ did on the cross. The word of God tells us that all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. No matter where you've been, what you've done, or how far you've wandered from God, there are none that he will turn away who trust in Christ for forgiveness today. He will bring you out of darkness and into light. He will take you from being his enemy and make you his child. Friend, confess your sin to God and seek his forgiveness. He stands ready to forgive you today. And for the rest of us, church, in closing, if you are in Christ you have experienced his mercy. You have experienced his grace. You have experienced the joy of walking with Christ. And this is, not be this is because of Christ's work, not our own. See, friends, the Lord's Supper celebrates just that. It celebrates Christ's work to set apart a people for himself whom he promised to redeem. They would be marked by unity because they are in Christ. Their hope would be set on the glorious eternity ahead of them because they would be with Christ. All of these things are true because of Christ's work on the cross for our, on our behalf. This is what the Lord's table is all about. And this, friends, this, this is why the Lord's Supper is the sweetest 
and best meal that we could ever partake of. Amen.